0: Terry Waldo. The program is This is Ragtime, and this is number six in our series, and I'm so gratified that uh, people have taken very kindly to the series. I've gotten a lot of compliments by way of email, and I understand that uh, people are telling their friends about it because we increase the uh, listenership every time we do this. So we hope you do that too. If you're enjoying the broadcast, Please uh, let your friends know about it. I think it's probably the best podcast that's available uh, that tells you about ragtime and traditional jazz. Today, we're going to be doing a tribute to Joe Moraney, or Ma Rainey, as Louis Armstrong called him. Then we're going to be doing uh, podcast number six, from my original broadcast, This is Ragtime, that appeared on NPR back in the early 70s. But first, we're going to play a cut from our new album, which is called I Double Dare You, which features the Gotham City band with Tatiana Eva-Marie. And right now I'd like to uh, tell you that the record label, Turtle Bay Records, is now an official sponsor of the podcast. Scott Ason, the executive producer and owner of Turtle Bay Records, has been working with me actually over many years, putting together bands of musicians and collecting various singers from New York and California and other places. We've been doing experimental recordings over about the last year and a half, and we've actually got a a number of great recordings in the can, as it were. And this represents an interest in presenting the pop music of the 20s and 30s, which was essentially jazz music. And done in the spirit of collective improvisation with musicians who could play together and improvise at the same time. So, we're going to play number six on the album, which is The Very Thought of You. Here it is. Mm
1: This longing here for you You'll never know How slow the moments go Until I'm near to you I see your face In every flower Your eyes and stars above It's just a thought of you very thought of you The thought of you, the very thought of you, my.
0: mentioned before, today we're going to be doing a tribute to Joe Morini or Morani. He was from Hungary, and uh, to the day he died, he was a big hero over there. He used to go and play festivals, and lots of people came out to see him. He started out playing in the United States Army Air Force's band. Then he came to New York in the 50s and attended the Manhattan School of Music and Columbia University. And then at that time, he started playing with some of the Dixieland bands that were playing in New York. Eddie Condon, uh, Jimmy McPartland, Max Kaminsky, Yank Lawson, Bobby Hackett, all of those people. But at the same time, he was also producing records and he produced uh, some of Thelonious Monk's stuff. But he loved traditional jazz, and he was very good at it. For the last seven years of Louis Armstrong's career, Joe was his favorite clarinet player. always used him whenever we could. And I want to play you, to start with, one of the tunes that we recorded with an album called Footlight Varieties. I think this was about 1990 that we did this. And the tune is called Big Butter and Eggman. And this features our usual guys. Peter Eklund is playing trumpet. Dan Barrett is on trombone. And, of course, Joe Morini is on clarinet. Brian Nalepka on tuba. John Gill, who's now in New Orleans, uh, plays drums on this. And Howard Alden is on the banjo. Joe does the vocal on this, and I also want you to notice that Dan Barrett arranged Louis Armstrong's famous chorus on this tune for three horns. So it really cooks. It's a very nice track. This is Big Butter and Eggman.
2: Butter and Eggman from way out, way out in the west. Cause she's getting tired of working all day. She wants somebody who wants her to play. Pretty things, yeah, have never been hers. Oh, but some sunny day you're gonna hear her purr. Cause she wants a butter and egg man Well, this great big butter and egg man wants her Yeah, baby
0: In 1995, I participated in a massive recording project that was done by Fred Starr with his Louisiana Repertory Jazz Ensemble. And we got together and recorded two albums worth of stuff. And the first cut on the album just featured Joe Marini and me. And... uh, It was called, Do You Know What It Means to Miss New Orleans? This was a tune that uh, Louis Armstrong had recorded, I believe, in about 1947 for a movie. And uh, this also has John Schaff playing banjo. So there's just the three of us, but you can really hear what Joe was able to do. He's featured on all of it. did an album for the Red Blazer, which was the great uh, traditional jazz place that had many locations in New York. The last one was on 46th Street, and we were going to put together a band to do an album that, that uh, was going to be sponsored by them. The, this bunch of recordings, which has yet to be issued, but I think I'm going to try to get them out this year. This is a, a tune that was uh, done by the original Dixieland jazz band. Here is Simon Wettenhall on trumpet. Joe Moraney plays clarinet. Tommy Arton is on trombone. Uh, Greg Cohen is on string bass. Uh, Cynthia Sayer is on the banjo. And Eddie plays drums on this one. And, I'm, of course, I'm on the piano. Here's the ostrich walk. Now we're going to play another tune from Footlight Varieties, which featured recordings that we made about 1985 and 86. And this one uh, is a very unusual number that features Susan Lamarche on a, a rare tune by Tony Jackson. Uh, this was published about 1917, and it's called "Waiting at the Old Church Door." And Tony Jackson, you might recall, was supposed to be the best entertainer and piano player in New Orleans, according to Jelly Roll Morton. And then Tony went to Chicago and and published a few songs, not many. There was only about eight altogether. And this cut uh, features Susan as well as Peter Eklund on trumpet, Joe, Dan Barrett, Howard Alden. Mike Walbridge from Chicago is playing tuba on this, and Hal Smith is playing drums and we brought in a, uh, a set of chimes for this. It's kind of a, a romantic thing. It's a little bit, a little bit different than, than other traditional jazz tunes that you might hear, but I think it's very sweet, and Joe plays some nice clarinet on this.
2: Your mind, there's no need to hesitate. Honey, don't you make me wait. I want you, I love you true. I'll wait for you tonight at nine, where the dear old ivy vines cling up close beside the door by the little stars that shine. Waiting for you slow.
0: So to finish our Joe Moraney tribute, we're going to play a tune called Just an Hour of Love, which was also from the album Footlight Varieties. And this features Joe, as well as Peter Eklund, Dan Barrett, Mike Walbridge, and Hal Smith. And Dan Barrett does the vocal. It's a hot number. Here it is, Just an Hour of Love. I think you're going to enjoy this one. <music> I look for happiness with you just one hour. Then so all the world may know that you belong to me. I'll just lock you in
1: my heart and throw away the key And If I could have a wish come true, it would be just an hour of love with
3: you.
0: in previous broadcasts we're going to have one of my old NPR radio shows this is Ragtime this is program number 6 from the original series just as it was played in 1972
4: This is Ragtime I'm Terry Waldo And today we're going to explore the music of James Scott, and talk with Rudy Blesch about classic ragtime. We've devoted three shows to the life and music of Scott Joplin, and it was Joplin who actually originated the term classic ragtime. And we discovered that all of the other composers of classic ragtime were directly or indirectly influenced by Joplin. There are two other composers who are generally considered along with Scott Joplin to make up the big three ragtime or classic ragtime composers, and that is Joseph Lamb, who will be the subject of next week's program, and James Scott, who was second only to Joplin. We asked historian Rudy Blesch, co-author of They All Played Ragtime, to tell us a little bit about Scott.
3: James Scott, of course, one of the big three of ragtime composers, James Sylvester Scott, actually, was. Uh, born back in the 1880s and he was only a boy of seventeen when he went to work for um, a uh, picture framing an art and music store in Carthage Missouri called Dumars d-u-m-a-r-s and his job there was uh, that a picture framer that's at the age of 17 and one day during the, the lunch hour mr. Dumars happened to come back in the store and he he heard a piano going in the back of the store, somebody playing playing some beautiful piano. And he goes back there, and it's young James Scott, the 17-year-old kid, and he says, I didn't know you could play. So he says, "Uh, yeah, I can play, and I can read too. Now this boy had taught himself at the age of 17, never had a music lesson from a single teacher, had taught himself in his spare time there not only to play piano, but to read music and to write it. And had gotten the gotten the rudiments of harmony so dumar was so impressed by it that he immediately being in a minor way in the music publishing business in those days every music store published music like every little town mechanic made automobiles with his own brand on them uh dumars published uh, the first thing ever published by jane scott called a summer breeze march and two-step 1903 Well, here is Summer Breeze, written by a 17-year-old
4: James Scott, and here performed by Naki Parker, who incidentally has recorded the complete works of James Scott.
3: James Scott, of course, who uh, was by way of being a child prodigy or at least a youth prodigy, prodigy as I've indicated to you, was a short man, only about five feet tall. He became stocky, died when he was only around 52 years of age, but um, he was a, evidently a brilliant player from the standpoint of technique and uh, just simply technical proficiency. And that's well borne out by his actual compositions which are the most pianistic and the most brilliant and i might say the most extrovert of the three major ragtime composers that is of course scott joplin james scott <coughs> and joseph lamb uh he was beautiful at the invention of melody his uh, his uh, his melodies are always beautifully constructed and he was the first one i think to utilize what probably was a playing device of the period that I would call the echo effect, which is to play a phrase, say, in middle register on the piano, then immediately echo it up an octave, or sometimes two octaves up. That became one of his uh, very characteristic compositional devices. Uh, The James Scott uh, scores are what we call, in what any musician would call, a black score meaning that there are an awful lot of notes on them. And when you look at the fades, they're black. Instead of just simply octaves in the bass for the stride bass, you'll get all fingers of your left hand going, and in some cases, all fingers of the right hand forming chords makes a very fully textured music. And um, when, when you couple that with uh, his rhythmic structure and the fact that a James Scott rag lends itself quite naturally to a little faster playing, I would say, than the average Joplin rag. In other words, more of a brilliant showpiece. Um, You know, I've often, in my mind, have thought of the three ragtime composers, the great ones, Scott Joplin, Joplin, James Scott, and Joe Lamb, as if they were one person, Uh, one composer with three different emotional and artistic aspects to his nature, making a completely rounded composer. One is the introverted, moody, uh, rather sad composer, although highly melodic, Scott Joplin. Other is extremely romantic, Chopinesque type of composer, Joe Lamb. The other is the brilliant concert pianist, James Scott. Between the three of them, actually, although the ragtime era was so short, classic ragtime actually compressed into less than two decades the full development, publication, and then it ends. 1897 to 1917, or if you want to make it 1899, starting with the original rags in 1919, the last of the James Scott rags are appearing at that time. At the same time, um, it made a very complete repertory of rags. In other words, you could have ragtime concerts taken entirely from that period, utilizing only these three main composers and have all the variety you would want as a piano recital. And the interesting thing about it, when I I speak of thinking of these three men as if they were one man, is that the other two were, of course, younger men than Scott Joplin, and both of them had been helped by Joplin at the start of their careers. Uh, Scott had uh, only had the local publication by Dumar and Joplin when he came to Sedalia, came to St. Louis, I mean, and met Joplin. And through Joplin, he met John Stark, and John Stark took him on as a regular, one of his composing stables.
4: The first Scott Rag to be published by Stark was the Frog Legs Rag in 1906. It's a very strong energetic rag and it contains many of the Scott trademarks, such as the echo effect in the last strain. Here is an early mechanically cut piano roll of the Frog Legs Rag. the remaining works that we have by James Scott were published by John Stark. And it might be well for us at this point to go back and take a look at Stark, a white man who did so much for the preservation of Negro classic ragtime. Rudy Blesch once again.
3: John Stark, incidentally, is one of the great characters. If um, you're doing a biography of Scott Joplin, uh, you almost have to make it a dual biography because it almost has to be a biography of two men. John Stark and Scott Joplin, and I remember in the earlier book that I did that I comment on the fact that the that the initials of the two men are like the thing in a mirror. In other words, John Stark, J.S., or Scott Joplin, S.J. One is black and one is white, kind of a Damon and Pythias of, of ragtime. It came at a time that uh, John Stark, who came from a family that was from Kentucky, that one that by all rights should have been completely immersed and embedded in racial chauvinism and prejudice was just the opposite he, em- he embraced the cause of this black man and and his music and it's an altogether altogether remarkable example of interracial constructive effort i think that goes back very early in other words 70 years ago this was going on three quarters of a century John Stark, who was born, as I say, in Kentucky in the 1840s, was a real pioneer. He he uh, laid out a homestead in Missouri before the Civil War. His first children were born before the Civil War. Then he went to the Civil War. He married a little girl in New Orleans. He was down there during the occupation of New Orleans. And he came back, and he started out uh, selling... Uh, Well, in fact, he was a pioneer in what was then a new business all over the country, the the ice cream business. And he had this little wagon that would go around this uh, rural area of Missouri and uh, would uh, sell the ice cream that they had made at home. And um, some music dealer in one of these little towns talked him into putting a organ, a little reed organ, on the truck and selling it and he would get a commission on it. So he sold that organ, then he sold another organ, then he got a little larger truck, and they began putting on upright pianos, (laughs) and he began selling pianos. So apparently, at one stage, he must have thought to himself, well, look here, for heaven's sakes, what's happening? I'm in the music business, not the ice cream business. Why don't I go the whole way? So he just just, uh, phased out the ice cream business, moved from uh, rural Missouri into the the bustling town, railroad center of Sedalia, and set up a music store. And it was there, of course, in the 1890s that Scott Joplin was a member of this itinerant group of players who were going around, who were actually creating the whole ragtime form, just in performance, in the Red Light District, in the Honky Tonks, in the bars, not in Carnegie Hall, that's for sure, or the Metropolitan Opera. They were playing where they had to. But Stark, with this open mind of his, that a guy has to be open-minded who can go from the ice cream business into the, into the Reed organ business without a second thought, says, so, you know, I like this music. And he had a daughter, Nell Stark, who was uh, who was a musical prodigy herself. And he had, she had become so good that she was had been sent to Europe to study with a famous player over there, Maurice Moskowski. When she came back, she was a concert pianist, and that was to be her career. But when she heard ragtime, it simply turned her on like nothing else had ever turned her on. She became the great propagandist of ragtime. The buddy of the of the Negro players there it got her father talked into publishing it, and He was very lucky, one must say, with his first publication, because he picked an opus by young Scott Joplin that happened to be called The Maple Leaf Rag, published in 1899, named after the club where Scott Joplin was playing. But it became the cornerstone, the first, you might say, the initial kickoff of the whole classical ragtime thing begins with The Maple Leaf Rag. So then, of course, having gotten The Maple Leaf Rag it uh, had no advance advertising. It began selling from the counters of a few stores orders began coming in so fast That they couldn't keep up with the printing the printers that not isn't couldn't keep up with Supplying John Stark. So he up stakes again leaves the daily goes over to st. Louis buys a printing press and Goes is really in the publishing business, but until they could get into the printing press he and his son Printed uh, the Maple Leaf Rag on a little hand press, they read it in the hotel room where they were staying until they could get a house to live in. They were coming in. Well, of course, Maple Leaf was the first instrumental composition in America to sell a million copies, which may not seem like much now, but when you think that the entire population of the country at that time was something like around 45 or 50 million people, it meant that at least two percent of the people ended up by buying Maple Leaf Rag himself said that that it wouldn't go out of print until every family in the world had at least one copy and uh, anyway then of course he was really in the music business got this plant on Laclede Street Laclede Avenue I'm sorry in St. Louis and uh, Joplin moved over and Joplin had these young proteges that he was forwarding in Sedalia especially uh, Arthur Marshall and uh, Scott Hayden both of them young talents and uh, he began publishing them. The first joint effort to come out was the famous Swipese Cakewalk, a joint effort of Arthur Marshall, a young teenager, and Scott Joplin. That got, of course, um, Stark really into the ragtime thing. That's when he took on James Scott and a lot of other talents and Joe Lamb and built up what is the catalog of classic ragtime.
4: It's interesting to read Stark's descriptions of the rags which appeared in his catalogs. I quote In this collection, you have the storm center of high class ragtime, the fountain from which composers draw their inspiration, ingenious, unique, and original, trenchant, terse, and scholarly. They are the rag classics, there are no others. Now, here's James Scott's Grace and Beauty rag, as played by Max Marath.
3: that I felt that classical ragtime had this phenomenal amount of development in less than two decades 1899 through about 1919 about two decades it is true there was phenomenal development there but the development apparently was choked off before it was anything near complete because as you analyze the work of Scott Joplin before his mental collapse in 1917 it becomes more and more classic more Complicated in structure with the bass lines becoming contrapuntal and all sorts of things besides the old-fashioned Oompa is going on in the music. Well the same way with, with um, Scott and Lamb as far as that goes uh, Lamb's work unpublished work when it came to light after his death in uh, Just a few years ago was startling in the development that he alone in his house all by himself Had carried through without any public hearing it without any publication in the same way uh, Scott James Scott's work become more and more complex the last few that were published after 1919 and one only wonders with a great deal of regret that all the manuscripts unpublished that, that were lost after James Scott's death, what the wealth of American music might have been there that we never will see. The last uh, things that James Scott did were also, also the last rag publications of John Stark. That's simply because Ragtime had faded out as a popular hit being supplanted by the newer fad, jazz, which was louder and more compelling music than ragtime, which is a little daintier. Anyway, not to get in any invidious comparisons, jazz came in and took over the stage. And in fact, one of the very last of the James Scott rags is, uh, came out when a song had made a hit called Jazz Me Blues. And um, it got Scott back up, and he wrote a song called, Don't Jazz Me, Rag, I'm Music. Don't Jazz
4: Me, Rag, I'm Music. Performed by Bob Wright. somewhat ironic that for all of Stark's dislike for jazz, the James Scott rags have been favorite numbers for traditional jazz bands. Turk Murphy, who has led a fine revivalist band on the West Coast for years, has performed many classic rags, and he finds the James Scott rags to be the jazziest in feel. So to bring this program to a fitting close, here's Turk Murphy and his jazz band playing James Scott's Climax Rag. This is Ragtime was produced, written, and narrated by Terry Waldo and directed by Jeff Mill, audio engineer Bob Robertson. This program was produced at the Ohio University Telecommunications Center with funds provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is NPR, National Public Radio.